Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in my apartment, La Chateau T-Dot, broadcasting to you from the southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina. We are back on a Monday rotation. The Thursday pods uh, were... A pain in the ass, frankly. It's difficult trying to do an outline in the middle of the week while I'm still trying to do court stuff. Uh, having Friday, Saturday, Sunday just makes my life much easier. So being back on the Monday rotation helps. A few quick podcast notes. I just wanted to say thank you for everybody who contributed to our Twitter fundraiser for the TJ Dunaway Scholarship Fund. Uh, we ended up raising just over $3,000. I think it came out to like 3020 specifically. Uh, but that was enough to fund three full scholarships, which is going to be a boost from what they had last year. And separate from that, I had a a crowdfunding effort for a test case that my office is going to take on against the Winterville Police Department and had a bunch of folks chip in on that too. We ended up trying to raise a thousand to cover filing costs and uh, transcription costs and so on. And I think we ended up raising triple that in the span of like an hour. So I appreciate y'all immensely and the work that y'all helped me do. Uh, especially with some of the charitable stuff we do every few months. It just it, it warms the cockles of my heart, you know what I mean? Uh, so we got a lot to talk about today. We are keeping with the mini-pod format. It's mostly 15-ish stories. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of politics, though, because of my home state being in the news. But if you have not already done so, please make sure to join the conversation online. The Twitter account is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you'd like to leave us a written comment, you can do that on our website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you'd like to become one of our financial sponsors, you can do that on Patreon.com slash Fisk. That is Patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. Now, I don't know if I've mentioned to y'all, but I am a native of Virginia. I was born in Fredericksburg. My mother was a freshman at what was then Mary Washington College. It is now the University of Mary Washington. I lived in Fredericksburg for like three days before coming home to Virginia Beach, which is where I was raised. So I was in Virginia from the day I graced this earth until after I graduated high school in 1998. So I have more than a smidge of uh, affinity for my home state. And when stuff is crazy in the news, I kind of wonder what the fuck is going on because my uh, grandparents still live there. I go back and visit them regularly. Uh, I have two aunts and their families that live there. My parents actually just moved back to Virginia like a couple months ago from being up in New England. And there's some crazy stuff going on in Virginia. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. So for those of you who have not been keeping up, I just want to go through the list of the political fuckery that has taken place. Uh, so all of this started with an abortion bill that was introduced in their legislature, their House of Delegates, that had no actual hope of ever actually passing and didn't even make it out of committee. But the explanations given by the bill sponsor and by the governor, Ralph Northam, defending the text of the bill – uh, just came across as very politically tone deaf. Essentially, the bill's opponents claimed that it would legalize uh, aborting babies at the time of delivery, and then abortion defenders were like, well, who the fuck would do that? No one's ever going to terminate a pregnancy at the time the kid is being born. I mean, it's the, the nine months of being pregnant is not the fun part. Uh, so then the opponents were like, well, if no one's ever going to do it, why do you need a law for it? And it just became this tremendous back and forth with everyone shouting at each other, no one convincing the other of their respective positions. Well, at some point, someone went to 
the governor's uh, yearbook for when he was in medical school. And on his particular page, there is a picture of a guy in blackface standing next to a guy in a Klan robe. And this got released, and this became a tremendous political firestorm. The governor, in the span of a couple hours, released a statement basically apologizing for appearing in the photo, didn't specify whether or not you know he was the guy in the blackface or the guy in the Klan hood. Well, then, as that is all going on, and people are demanding that he resign, and there's this huge pile on on Northam, the lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, is preparing to potentially become governor. He's doing what he has to do for that. Uh, but then it turns out that a college professor accused him of sexual assault. So then he is under fire. And while Fairfax is under fire and responding to that, a second yearbook photo comes out of Northam where his nickname was Coon Man when he was in college. He then issued a new statement saying, wait a minute, I was wrong. That was not me in the yearbook picture because those guys are holding their beers in their right hand, and I hold my beers in the left hand. And he had this totally bonkers press conference where he basically said the reason he apologized is because back in 1984, he did dress in blackface to imitate Michael Jackson as part of a dance competition, and a reporter asked him to do the moonwalk, and he actually looked like he was going to do it before his wife stepped in and said, no, it's probably a bad idea. So all of this is going on. And then Mark Herring, who is the attorney general, he's third in line. So if the governor resigned and the lieutenant governor resigned, Herring would become the governor. So he called a meeting with the black legislators to confess that he, too, had dressed in blackface when he was 19 in college. He went to a party supposedly dressed as rapper Curtis Blow. Uh, so that is all taking place. This is all percolating in the background. There's new revelations every day. A second woman came forward to say that the lieutenant governor had assaulted her when they were both students at Duke University back in 2000. Uh, Northam has said that he's not going to resign no matter what. He's going to pivot and focus his administration on racial justice, racial reconciliation. The whole thing is just a tremendous clusterfuck of clusterfucks. I've never seen anything like it ever. You know, in any state government, in any federal government, I've never seen so many totally different scandals involving so many different politicians. Like you see a major scandal involving a bunch of politicians, but it's all basically around the same set of facts. Like, you know, a whole bunch of politicians in the Trump-Russia investigation, but it all has to do with collusion. These are totally different scandals that all just happen to be coming out at the same time, all based out of really political revenge over this inconsequential bill that didn't even make it out of committee. And then the, to, the piece, the cherry on top, is that if hypothetically all three of these folks were to resign, I don't think they will. I think there's enough dirt on each of them now that all three of them stay in office. It's kind of like a circular firing squad type situation. But if all three resigned, the governor would be the Speaker of the House. And that person happens to be a Republican. And the only reason there is a Republican Speaker is because there is a one-seat Republican majority in the House. And the only reason there is a one-seat Republican majority is because one of the House races ended in an exact tie and was decided with a coin flip. So just to, to put the icing on the cake of fuckery that is happening in the State House in Richmond, Virginia, my, uh, my former home state, 
I'd be remiss if I didn't comment on it. So I just wanted to memorialize that in the podcast. If you happen to be one of our listeners in Virginia, uh, Godspeed. I don't know what the fuck is going on up there. It's some really, really crazy shit. All right, so let's hop into the criminal justice fuckery. In the appellate court news, we have a case out of the Seventh Circuit where a conviction for attempted murder has been thrown out because the star witness for the prosecution was hypnotized. Now, if that sounds familiar to you and you're thinking, wait a minute, this is a story you've already talked about, you are wrong. This is a different story. This is really kind of like a third rule of Fisk type thing. No new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. Last week, we talked about Fred Clay in Massachusetts, who was also convicted based on hypnosis testimony. He has been found innocent now. This is about Max Sims in Indiana, different guy, also convicted based on hypnosis testimony. And the Seventh Circuit has said that the prosecution hid that evidence from the defense. And because of it, there has to be a new trial. Uh, from the story in ProPublica, it says, quote, A federal appeals court has overturned an attempted murder conviction in Elkhart, Indiana, saying a prosecutor concealed, subquote, explosive evidence that the state's sole eyewitness had been placed under hypnosis prior to trial, throwing into doubt the witness's reliability. The court's opinion, issued 25 years after the defendant Max Sims was convicted, is the latest rebuke of Elkhart's criminal justice system, which has been the subject of an ongoing investigation by the South Bend Tribune and ProPublica. The prosecutor who failed to disclose the hypnosis, Charles Wicks, is now an Elkhart Superior Court judge presiding over felony and misdemeanor cases. Sims was arrested in November 1993 on suspicion of shooting Shane Carey, a security guard, sitting in his car. Police said they found Sims about a half hour after the shooting, crouching behind a nearby trash bin. In 1994, Sims was convicted in a jury trial of attempted murder and sentenced to 35 years in prison. He's currently at Westville Correctional Facility in the state's northwest corner. No physical evidence linked Sims to the shooting. The state's case hinged on Carey's identification of Sims as the shooter. When Sims stood trial, Wicks, the case's prosecutor, did not inform the defense that he had referred the victim to a hypnotist. The hypnotist was a physician's assistant that Wicks knew from the Kiwanis Club. Subquote, given the well-known problems that hypnosis poses for witnesses' memories, we can be confident that Carey's identification testimony would have been subjected to withering cross-examination, the federal appeals court wrote in its opinion. Subquote, the prosecution's case against Sims depended completely on Carey's credibility, which the suppressed hypnosis evidence would have severely undermined. In Sims' case, the victim's hypnosis was not publicly revealed until 2012, while Sims was seeking a new trial. During a hearing in Elkhart Superior Court, then-prosecutor Graham Palando disclosed a conversation he had had with Wicks by then a judge prior to the hearing. Wicks told Palando that, subquote, the victim in this case identified the defendant, Mr. Sims, only after hypnotism, Palando said in court. What's more, according to the federal appeals court opinion, Palando said Wicks, subquote, asked me not to disclose what he told me about Carrie's hypnosis. So we're going to give you a link to both the rest of this story and the Seventh Circuit opinion. If Elkhart, Indiana sounds familiar to you, that's probably because way back in episode 77, we talked about the case of Keith Cooper and Christopher Parrish, both of whom were convicted based on police fuckery and prosecutorial misconduct. Both of them have since been exonerated. One of them actually got a pardon of innocence. 
so that was in episode 77. And then in episode 89, we talked about two other Elkhart police officers who had been charged with assault for beating a guy who was already handcuffed. Uh, so there's a lot of fucked up shit taking place in Elkhart, Indiana. We'll give you links to all of that stuff. Uh, in our state-by-state state criminal justice fuckery, uh, out of Arizona, in Glendale, we have the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. And in this case, this is from a 2017 arrest where video has now been publicly released because a 1983 lawsuit has been filed. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, On July 27th of 2017, Johnny Wheatcroft was a passenger in a silver Ford Taurus when a pair of Glendale police officers pulled in front of them in a Motel 6 parking lot. The stop was for an alleged turn signal violation. Minutes later, Wheatcroft was handcuffed, lying face down on the hot asphalt on a 108-degree day. He had been tased ten times, with one officer kneeling on his back, as another, Officer Matt Schneider, kicked him in the groin and then pulled down his athletic shorts to tase him a final time in his testicles, according to a federal lawsuit and body camera footage obtained by ABC 15. The entire scene was witnessed by Wheatcroft's 11- and 6-year-old sons. Multiple independent law enforcement experts who agreed to review the incident said the officer's conduct was unlawful, potentially criminal, and one of the most cruel and troubling cases of police misconduct they've ever seen. And I'm going to put it in a sidebar here. It's worse than it sounds. We're going to give you the video so you can go see it, but it's, it's pretty fucked up. I mean, short of police killing somebody, it's probably one of the worst videos I've seen in a while. Uh, story continues, subquote, I have never seen anything like this before, said Jeff Noble, an attorney and former deputy chief of police in Irvine, California, who's testified in hundreds of cases, including Tamir Rice and Philando Castile. Subquote, it reminds me of a case in New York where an individual was sadistically taking a broom handle and shoving it up the suspect's anus. That was Amadou Diallo, by the way. This is just beyond the pale. It is outrageous conduct. Former LAPD detective supervisor T.T. Williams echoed his shock. Subquote, that's not even borderline, said Williams, an expert witness who testified in the Philip Brailsford case on behalf of the prosecution. Subquote, that's inhumane. Schneider was suspended for 30 hours and remains an active officer on the force. Some fucking punishment. Story continues, quote, The experts said it was appalling that Schneider, who has won multiple awards from the police chief and has represented Glendale twice on the TV show Cops, was not terminated. They also believe Glendale should have referred the case for outside criminal investigation and prosecution. Wheatcroft, who was arrested and charged with aggravated assault on a police officer, spent months in jail after the incident because he couldn't afford bail. The charges against Wheatcroft were then dismissed by the Maricopa County Attorney's Office after prosecutors saw the body camera video. And we'll give you a link to it. You know, if you have the stomach for it, go watch it because it's, you know, a lot of people have issues with what we call torture porn, which is really what a lot of these things are. Like, it's a lot of grotesque videos. And folks are like, well, why the fuck would you share that? You know, obviously it's fucked up. Well, the reason why we share it is because a lot of people don't understand just how fucked up this stuff is. You know, you hear me talking every week about the, the misconduct of police around the country. It's another thing entirely to see it with your own eyes. And they get fucking joy out of it. Like, it's not just that they're violating the Constitution and going beyond the, the, the obligation to protect and serve. They're abusing people and they think it's fucking funny. They enjoy it. They get a kick out of it. 
So we'll give you a link, watch it if you can, and, and let it soak in just how fucked up that particular incident is. And all this guy got was a few days of suspension, and he's still on the force today. In California, out of Contra Costa County, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, I'm not Californian, but hopefully I'm close, uh, there's a lawsuit currently taking place over Senate Bill 1421, which is a fantastic law that California passed, basically saying that if you there's an investigation of police misconduct and it's sustained, those records got to be made public. It's a tremendous you know, step forward for transparency and accountability. Well, of course, the police unions are losing their fucking minds and doing everything they can to try and block these records release. Uh, so there's a story about a judicial ruling where a judge basically said, you know, no dice, this, these records have to be released, but his order was uh, stayed pending appeal. From the story, it says, quote, In the first ruling on the scope of California's new police transparency law, a Contra Costa County judge on Friday ruled that years of discipline and use of force documents can be made public, rejecting the arguments of law enforcement unions that records prior to January 1st should still be kept secret. Judge Charles Treat immediately put a hold on the ruling to give the unions time to appeal, but his decision, made from the bench following a 90-minute hearing, was lauded by First Amendment and police reform advocates as a victory in what they expect will be a long fight. The legal battle over Senate Bill 1421 is far from over and is likely to end up before California's Supreme Court. The legislation, signed last year by Governor Jerry Brown, throws open disciplinary records for a variety of officer misconduct and guarantees the public access to internal reviews of officer-involved shootings and use of force. Unions representing police officers in Antioch, Richmond, Martinez, Walnut Creek, and Concord, and county sheriff's deputies sued last month to block release of records requested by the Mercury News and other news organizations going back at least five years. Treat temporarily barred those agencies from releasing records last month while he considered the matter. About 15 similar legal challenges, mostly in Southern California, also are working their way through the courts. Four of the departments that Judge Treat had temporarily stopped from disclosing records, Antioch, Concord, Richmond, and the Contra, Co Contra Costa Sheriff's Office, uh, combined to have at least 12 fatal shootings during just the past five years. In addition, the sheriff's department had at least 13 in-custody deaths during the past five years. Reports on those deaths must be released under the new law. Uh, so that was in Contra Costa County. In Kern County, we have in a, one of several stories of puppy side. I uh, just want to forewarn you, there's like six puppy side stories out of these 15. So if you're a puppy side, you know, if that bothers you, just be forewarned. So the first story of Puppy Side, quote, a railroad police officer accidentally shot and killed his canine partner while on patrol in Kern County. BNSF railway spokeswoman Lena Kent said the officer, who she didn't name, was on patrol around 8 o'clock at night on Thursday in the area of Benna Road in rural Kern County when the shooting occurred. The officer had put his canine partner, named Defender, in his patrol vehicle, but somehow Defender got out and approached the startled officer. Kent said the officer had recently been warned during a safety briefing about wild animals he would encounter while on patrol. The officer thought the dog was a coyote and shot it dead. Uh, so that is in California, out of Colorado, in Denver. We have the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. Uh, there, the police detained a newspaper editor who was recording police activity, and an internal investigation said that was wrong. 
uh, from the story. It says, quote, a Denver Police Department internal investigation released today found two officers violated city policy when they handcuffed and detained Colorado Independent editor Susan Green last summer. Both face fines worth two days of pay. Green's action, recording on-duty officers in public with her phone camera, subquote, does not in itself provide grounds for detention or arrest, a department rule states. Officers are not allowed to, subquote, threaten or intimidate individuals who are recording police activities, nor will they discourage or interfere with the recording of police activities. The seven-month internal investigation determined that officers James Brooks and Adam Paulson violated this rule, according to reports the city provided today on each officer's conduct. Additionally, the report stated in footnotes that Brooks turned on his body camera belatedly, failing to record his behavior when approaching Green, and that the officers were both mistaken in telling Green she was violating HIPAA, a federal law outlining an individual's rights to privacy and medical records, when she was recording their handling of a vulnerable man on a Colfax Avenue sidewalk. That's a fucking joke. The notion that you're violating HIPAA by recording somebody... It's, it's ridiculous. I don't think that was a mistake. I think that was uh, willfully mendacious trying to convince this woman to stop. But there's more to the story. We will give you a link to it in the show notes. So that was in Colorado. Out of Florida, we've got a pair of stories. The first one is out of Broward County, and it is the first rule of Fisk again. Uh, as a reminder, the first rule is that police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. And in this case, this is another incident where there's video from a 2017 situation that is just now material realizing two years later. From the story, it says, quote, The actions of a Broward Sheriff's Office deputy with a history of making false arrests drew a complaint from the Broward Public Defender's Office after body cam video from a July 2017 incident emerged last month. Deputy James Cady confronts Alan Floyd, an African-American father, calmly holding his infant. Uh, Katie angrily drops F-bombs and calls Floyd boy before appearing to grab Floyd by the throat. Floyd was not under investigation for any crime, nor was he being belligerent towards Katie in the video from July 25th of 2017. Broward Public Defender Howard Finkelstein made the latter point in a January 30th letter to newly appointed Broward Sheriff Gregory Tony. Subquote, Deputy Katie's verbal assault, coupled with him choking an otherwise cooperative bystander, can only be characterized as unlawful touching, Finkelstein wrote. Subquote, in addition, Deputy Katie's use of the term boy is offensive, condescending, and demeaning. It carries racial connotations when used while addressing an adult black male. In the official report on the incident, Katie's presence isn't even noted, although the video shows he played a key role. So I'm going to summarize some of the story because it's a lengthy story going through a long set of video. But basically, Floyd was a bystander at a hotel while police were arriving to arrest a totally different woman. Floyd is just outside minding his own fucking business, wearing a pair of shorts, holding his kid. The officer starts repeatedly demanding that Floyd show him ID, which he doesn't have. So Floyd tries to show him pictures on his camera phone of who he is and the fact that he is the boy's father. And it just escalates from there. Katie grabs Floyd by the throat. A totally different officer rips the child out of Floyd's arms. It all looks worse than the news article sounds. Uh, so we'll give you a link to it and let you decide for yourself how that all went down. But magically, there was no reference at all to this particular officer in the report, uh, undoubtedly because police knew that he had fucked up and they were trying to cover their tracks. 
uh, out of Polk County, Florida. We have another case of puppy side. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, a Polk County Sheriff's Office deputy was forced to shoot and kill another deputy's canine on Monday night. Deputy Scott Cronin works as a canine handler and was taking care of another canine deputy's dog while he was out of town. A spokesperson for the Sheriff's Office says Deputy Cronin has been taking care of canine recon for the past week for Polk County Sheriff's Office Deputy Garrett Ziegler. But when Cronin went over Monday night to care for recon, the dog attacked him and bit his hand. Deputy Cronin was then forced to shoot and kill the canine. A sheriff's office spokesperson said canine deputies typically take care of each other's dogs if they're out of town because they are trained to deal with the dogs and are familiar with each canine. That particular sentence doesn't seem to jive with the rest of the story, but I'll leave that there for you to decide what actually happened. Uh, out of Illinois and Mount Carmel, we have another case of puppy side. And this one, an officer arrived to help a burglary victim and take down her story and in the process managed to kill her service dog. From that story, it says, quote, a former resident's dog was shot and killed by a Mount Carmel police officer last week during an investigation regarding the owner's missing property. Jennifer Wire or Weir, W-E-I-R, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, I'm going to assume it's Weir, uh, had returned to her former residence Wednesday when she said she found some things were missing and she presumed her ex-husband had taken them. According to Weir, her ex-husband was not supposed to be present at the residence due to a protective order. As Weir showed the Mount Carmel officer, still unidentified, around the property to detail what was missing, Weir let her dogs out the back door. Her 11-year-old service dog, a female American Staffordshire Terrier named Juniper, approached the officer outside. Weir said Juniper was shot once, injuring her, and then shot again, killing her. At the time the dog was killed, she was facing Weir, she said. Police Chief John Larkhart said the officer could not know the dog's intentions and had to make a split-second decision. Normally, MCPD officers will use their tasers on dogs first, but the officer could not reach his in time in this incident, according to Lockhart. Let me pause. It takes the exact same fucking amount of time to reach your taser as it does to reach your service weapon. There's no particular distinction in speed. I've worn a holster before. I've tried to access these things before because that's shit the defense attorneys do. This entire line of argument is bullshit. Uh, Juniper served as Weir's service dog. She has multiple sclerosis, and Juniper helped her get around when she needed it. Juniper had hip dysplasia, according to Weir, and was no longer able to help her, so Weir has another dog, a puppy, that was also present when Juniper was shot. Uh, Lockhart, who instituted body cameras for his department as one of his initial actions as police chief, said he had reviewed the video and closed the case. So, quote, unfortunately, sometimes this stuff happens, he said. That's the entire fucking problem. You know, it amazes me that you have mailmen working for the United States Postal Service who interact with tens of thousands of dogs every single day and they manage to not fucking kill them. You know, I was bitten by a dog when I was walking to class back in the eighth grade. I managed to not kill that particular dog. All kinds of people interact with dogs and manage to not shoot them dead. The notion that a service dog is going to attack or look in a manner where an officer would think it's going to attack is ludicrous. Unless that particular officer is a total fucking pussy. 
so that was in Illinois, in Indiana. We have yet another case of puppy side. Uh, this time, it's another cop killing his own canine from the department. From that story, it says, quote, Former Laurel police officer Clint Ellis pleaded guilty February 5th to cruelty to an animal in a case involving Ellis's neglect of his police-issued canine. The case arose due to an Indiana Department of Natural Resources investigation into the death of the canine named Blade. The investigation into Blade's death was spearheaded by IDNR officer Corey Norrod. Norrod found that in Ellis's care, the canine, subquote, had lost a significant amount of weight, was not being taken out regularly, and was left to wallow in his cage among his urine and feces. Blade was found dead in his cage at Ellis's home. And for killing this police-issued canine that taxpayers spent a bundle of money on to train, uh, he got one year of probation and will pay $11,000 in restitution to the state. There's a special place in hell for people who kill dogs. I truly believe that. But it also reminds me we're debating whether or not to add a sixth rule of Fisk. And if we add it, we still haven't made that decision yet, but it's going to be police are like a box of chocolates. They'll kill your dog. Uh, that was in Indiana, out of Louisiana, the floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck of criminal justice in New Orleans. A guy tried to turn himself in because he was wanted for murder, and the jailers wouldn't book him because he did not have a proper ID. From that story in The Advocate, it says, quote, Want to turn yourself in on a murder warrant in New Orleans? Be sure to bring an ID. A man wanted in the fatal shooting of a New Orleans East gas station clerk spent nearly an hour Wednesday pleading with deputies to book him into the Orleans Parish lockup. Frank Sams Jr. hoped to start the process of fighting a murder charge connected to a botched armed robbery at a gas station in September. But lawyer Kelly Orians, who accompanied Sams to the jail, said deputies at the front desk refused to process him unless he had a state identification card. Sams didn't have one on him. Orion said deputies crowded around trying to keep Sims out. Her suggestion that no one would turn himself in on someone else's murder charge went unheeded. Subquote, this is all very serious to us, and yet we walked into an agency tasked with protecting our community, and it was like it was a joke, Orion said. The logjam ended only after Orion's produced a copy of a news article featuring Sams's picture and noting that he was wanted. With that, Sams was whisked away as quickly as he came in. The Sheriff's Office General Counsel said it is unusual for someone to surrender themselves directly to jail on a murder warrant rather than through homicide detectives. Subquote, however, our policy does not require any identification for booking. We are investigating the claims based upon the information provided by the advocate, the General Counsel said. Uh, so that was in Louisiana. Out of Massachusetts, in Boston, this... <laughs> God. So this is a combination Massachusetts-Rhode Island case. A pair of Rhode Island prostitutes have been charged with stealing a Boston deputy's gun. So we're putting it in Massachusetts for our categorization purposes. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, Police have arrested two women after they say the pair stole a handgun from an off-duty Boston police officer over the weekend. The two women are accused of stealing the officer's forty caliber Glock 22 while hanging out with him at the Hampton Inn where he was staying. According to the Pawtucket Police Department, the Boston officer said he arranged to meet a woman named Natalia at a bar located inside the hotel. Police said the officer and a, the woman then went to the Nera Lounge in Providence, Rhode Island to meet up with another woman. The three of them then went to Cadillac Lounge before heading back to the Hampton Inn where the officer was staying. And it goes on from there. This is a very long story. But the gist of it is one of the women asked the 
cop for a phone charger. So he gave her the keys to his patrol car. Uh, after they finished doing their thing, he then went out to the car and noticed that his gun had been stolen out of the glove box. Uh, he had kept the gun in the glove box secured with a cable lock, but he kept the key to the cable lock in the cup holder of the car. It's just a whole bunch of stupid stuff. Uh, story continues, quote, Providence Public Safety Commissioner Stephen Perret said the gun was dropped off at a fire station on Hartford Avenue in Providence. An unidentified person called the department to let them know it was there. According to Boston Police, the officer has been placed on administrative leave with pay. We call that paid vacation, uh, pending the outcome of an internal investigation. Police are not identifying the officer at this time. I don't have any problem with sex workers, but I do have a problem with idiot cops keeping their guns in their vehicles and then giving the keys to the car to somebody else. It's it's ridiculous. So that was out of Massachusetts in Michigan, in Detroit. We have another one of these stories where it's just you can't really believe this type of stuff happens, but it does. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, police officials have launched a criminal investigation to determine if any murder cases were tainted after a retired homicide cop was found with a locker full of evidence in his home. The former detective, who retired from the police force in 2012 but had left the homicide section in 2009, was being evicted from his home on Thursday when court bailiffs and moving company employees stumbled on the evidence, Detroit Police Chief James Craig said Friday. Subquote, they were evicting him, and the moving company and bailiff were tossing items away when they came across a locker with evidence in it, Craig said. Subquote, the evidence was still sealed and boxed up. They notified us, and it appears to be evidence from old homicide cases. We're mulling through it all now. We're concerned this could taint some cases. What if some of this evidence was never introduced in court? I'm not saying that's what happened. Right now, we just don't know, but that's what we're looking into. Of course, they have not named the officer. Now, if you or I were discovered with a locker full of evidence in our home, we would have our mugshot name plastered on every single TV screen in the entire area. Uh, but here, they managed to keep all that stuff hush-hush. Uh, so that's out of Michigan. In North Carolina, in Vanceboro, we have another kitty diddler on the force. This is the third rule of Fisk, by the way. There are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. From that story, it says, quote, A former North Carolina police officer is facing multiple child pornography charges after state agents searched his Craven County home, according to reports from WITN and other media outlets. Jason Lovick, 31, of Vanceboro, was arrested Wednesday and charged with eight counts of second-degree sexual exploitation of a minor, WCTI reported. He bonded out that day and made his first court appearance Thursday. Lovick had worked for about three weeks at the Grifton Police Department. He had also previously worked in law enforcement in Craven County and Lenore County, according to WCTI. Chief Brian Silva said Lovick was no longer with the Grifton PD, according to WCTI. He was fired Wednesday, subquote, as a result of the investigation and arrest. Media outlets report that Lovick is a married father of three. If I were the wife, I'd be looking into a divorce and getting the kids out of the house. I don't know what it is about police and, and kitty porn, man. Like, we have a lot of stories about kitty porn on a fairly regular basis. It's disturbing. Uh, out of Tennessee and Nashville, we have the first rule of Fisk, except applied to jailers this time. First rule is police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. And this is another scenario where a lawsuit has been filed and video has been released. From that story, it says, quote, police have released video footage of a former corrections officer at Nashville's privately run jail, pepper spraying an inmate without justification in the middle of the night. 
Aluwatobi Ola of Smyrna was arrested last year and pleaded guilty to misdemeanor assault, but his conviction was dismissed in January after he completed an eight-week anger management class. We call those a deferred prosecution, where you perform certain activities and in exchange you get your case dismissed. Uh, Ola was also fired by Core Civic, a massive private corrections company that manages the Metro Davidson County detention facility where Ola worked, as well as prisons throughout Tennessee. The inmate who was assaulted, James Nelson, alleged that Ola attacked him because he was considering filing a lawsuit against Core Civic over a scabies infection. If that was truly Ola's plan, it backfired. Nelson still joined the scabies lawsuit and also filed a new suit against Core Civic over the pepper spray assault. Despite firing Ola, Core Civic is defending his actions in civil court. Although the video footage of the assault was not released until this week, the actual incident occurred in the middle of the night on July 20th of 2017. Ola awoke Nelson at about 1.45 in the morning to search his cell, sending Nelson into a common area of the jail called a sally port that is in full view of a security camera. The video footage spans about 10 minutes and has no sound. It shows Nelson enter the sally port at 1.47 a.m., followed by Ola two minutes later. The men then talk for about two minutes. Nelson appears agitated at times, pacing, nodding, and gesturing to Ola's belt. Ola appears to remove his pepper spray from a holster on his belt. Then Nelson takes two steps backwards, distancing himself from the guard. Ola then blasts Nelson with the pepper spray, causing the inmate to turn his body away and try to protect his face. Ola follows him forward, spraying continuously. When Nelson bends over and covers his face with his arms, Ola leans over, attempting to find a better angle to continue spraying the inmate. And we'll go from there. This is another story where the video is actually worse than the article sounds. Uh, so we'll give you the link, and you can decide for yourself. Speaking of deciding for yourself, y'all remember that story last week out of Houston where the uh, they had this botched drug raid where they managed to kill a dog and a Navy veteran and his spouse uh, because they were supposedly breaking up a heroin dealing operation? Well, you will be shocked, shocked to find out the entire thing was bullshit. The controlled buy didn't actually happen. One of the officers has been suspended because of it. And the more people dig, the more fucked up shit they find. From a story in the Houston Chronicle, it says, quote, The deadly drug bust in Pecan Park last month that left two people dead and five officers injured netted only... Let me pause. Sorry, I got to back up. There were five officers who were shot. The homeowner only had a six-round revolver. So either this guy is John Wick-level good in terms of his ability to shoot at people, or some of those injuries were the result of friendly fire. I'm just putting that out there because the math just doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. Sorry, let me back up. The deadly drug bust in Pecan Park last month that left two people dead and five officers injured netted only 18 grams of marijuana and 1.5 grams of white powder, according to the results of a search warrant released on Friday. One day after a narcotics officer was relieved of duty pending an internal investigation, officials remained tight-lipped about the botched raid, which was one of the most violent in the history of the Houston Police Department. Subquote, we're not going to piecemeal the discussion, Police Chief Art Acevedo said Friday after a promotion ceremony at the Trading Academy in North Houston. Subquote, when we are done with our investigation, we will have uncovered every stone to get to the truth. 
The chief declined to address continued questions that have swirled since the January 28th raid when police raided the home expecting to shut down a heroin-dealing operation. Instead, their no-knock raid kicked off a gun battle that ended with the deaths of Navy veteran Dennis Tuttle, his wife Regina Nicholas, and their dog, but failed to turn up any heroin. The court filing released this week did not list any drug paraphernalia or scales either, which were apparently not recovered from the scene. In the days after the deadly shootout, the couple's friends and family called in to question the official narrative, saying Nicholas and Tuttle weren't drug dealers and questioning whether police raided the wrong house. On the other side, the police union framed the officers' shootings as more evidence of a war on cops, and President Joe Gamaldi sparked criticism with controversial comments blaming mainstream media and certain activists for spreading anti-police rhetoric. Then on Thursday, police said that one of the officers involved in the raid was relieved of duty in light of, subquote, ongoing questions about the deadly encounter. The officer, who was not publicly identified, was not among those wounded. His suspension, law enforcement sources said, comes amid a probe into questions over whether the sworn affidavit used to justify the no-knock warrant may have contained false information. Uh, so we'll give you a link to that story. It's a lot more than just what I quoted you. They, the Houston Chronicle goes pretty in-depth. But I suspect when all is said and done, they're going to find that this was all bogus from start to finish. Uh, also in Texas, the Montgomery Independent School District. And this isn't a story, by the way. This is a picture that I saw on Twitter. Um, so the Montgomery schools have their own police force, and they have their own police department. And there's a picture in that department of one of the officers giving a presentation. And on one side is the American flag. On the other side is the Texas flag. And next to the officer on the wall, you have four words, honor, integrity, trust, transparency. Theoretically, these are things that the police department believes in. Uh, but they also, the person who created it, uh, they did the thin blue line thing with each of those words. So the dark blue line looks like it's striking through the black text of honor, integrity, trust, and transparency. So we'll give you a link to the uh, the Twitter post, the tweet that had the picture in it, and it's just it's comical. It's utterly fucking ridiculous. Finally, our last story in criminal justice fuckery news this week is out of Virginia in Richmond. It ties in with the political stuff we use to kickstart the podcast. And I don't want to spoil the surprise, so I'm just going to read you the story directly. It says, quote, A police sergeant in Virginia who was assigned to monitor the protests related to Governor Ralph Northam – bear in mind, these are protests related to the governor dressing in blackface, by the way – was suspended on Wednesday after being identified by an anti-fascist group as having, subquote, an affinity with white nationalist groups. The sergeant, Robert A. Stam, subquote, has been placed on paid administrative leave pending the results of a review. That is paid vacation, by the way. Uh, the Virginia Division of Capitol Police said in a statement, Sergeant Stam joined the division in 2014 and was promoted to his current rank last year, officials said. The authorities said in the statement that they were, subquote, made aware early Wednesday morning of a, subquote, possible violation of division policy by Sergeant Stam. A police official specified that the possible violation that prompted the suspension was outlined in a blog post published on Tuesday by the group Anti-Fascist of the Seven Hills. 
The group describes itself as an organization that seeks to fight fascists in Richmond, Virginia, subquote, as communists and anarchists united in militant opposition. In the blog post, the group published several pictures, apparently pulled from Sergeant Stam's social media accounts, of what it said was him with tattoos, flags, and banners that it said were symbols and images associated with Nazis and white supremacists. Uh, I didn't have this as part of the quote, but there are also several other segments where he's uh, identifying himself as a member of a neo-Nazi group based in Virginia. So we will give you a link to that story, but it is the peak of irony that a governor is found to wear blackface and one of the police officers who is tasked with monitoring protests to that blackface thing uh, turns out to be a neo-Nazi himself. Uh, so, folks, that is it for this mini-pod. We will be back next week. I hope uh, you liked what you've heard. If you did, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star rating or a written review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you happen to get your podcasts. Also, make sure to tell a friend, have them listen to us. Uh, because of the sporadic breaks, our listenership has plummeted drastically. So I'd like to get our listenership back up. Please tell people to give us a listen. And on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, I hope all of you have a blessed week, and we will talk to you next Monday. Take care. <laughs>